the Spirit of God is here. I don't know if you know that or not, but wow. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm watching people embrace. I'm, I'm thinking of just, wow. Um, we're, we're a little behind schedule because a woman had a seizure and we had to call the paramedics during the first service, and uh, I, I guess I want to assure you that, you know, there's not a safer place you could be, because as soon as we said something, there were about 50 doctors and nurses and everybody around her, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people here, plus the Spirit of God is here, and uh, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Um, this is uh, this is an unbelievable service today as we talk about an unbelievable story. Let me tell you about a let me tell you about this crazy uh, book that was published several years ago, the Worst Case Scenario Handbook. The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. has it, it sold millions of copies. I mean, I can't get a book published about Jesus, but they could sell millions of copies of this book about how to jump from a building into a dumpster and land safely. I mean, it's, it's how to perform a tracheotomy on your friend. You need a knife and a ballpoint pen. It's how to survive if your parachute doesn't open. It's just all these dumb little quirky things. And I thought, you know what? There's a lesson in here for us, and I, and I want to learn it. Because sometimes in the, in the suburbs of Chicago, there are things that happen to us that we should know how to be prepared for. So this is just one I picked out. I thought it would be really easy for you to try to figure out. If you are confronted by an angry mountain lion, what should you do? Number one, A, run. B, you keep track yourself. B, play dead. C, make yourself look bigger by opening your coat. <laughs> D, sing a gentle, happy song. Today I don't feel like doing anything. <laughs> All right, what do you think? How many of you think it was uh, run? How many play dead? How many C, make yourself look bigger? How many D, Bruno Mars? Thank you, Bruno Mars fans. It was C. It was open your coat to make, you, make yourself look bigger. I don't know if they're right or not, but that's what they say. So if you're like walking through New Lenox later and you see an angry mountain lion, now you know what to do. Okay, but, but wait, there's more. What if you have a small child with you? This will be interesting, okay? What if there's an angry mountain lion and you have a small child? What should you do? A, pick the child up. B, shield the child with your body. C, shield your body with the child. This would depend on which child you had with you, right? Or D, run. Because you may not be able to outrun a mountain lion, but you could outrun a small child. <laughs> How many of you think it was A, pick the child up? How many of you think it was B, shield the child with your body? You great parents out there. How many of you C, you better not raise your hand, that's terrible. How many of you D run? What do you think? You know what the answer is? A. Pick the child up. Why? Because it will make you look bigger. There are times in your life when you do not have the ability to withstand whatever it is that is attacking you and you need the ability to make yourself look bigger. Where do you think I'm going? I'm a pastor. We're studying the book of Daniel and I want to tell you how to do that spiritually today. And it's by putting on the power of God in your life. Make yourself look bigger by putting the power of God on in your life. We've been looking at the, at the book of Daniel. We've talked about how Daniel was and his three friends that we're going to talk about today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were 
were 15, 16 years old, they were captured by Nebuchadnezzar, but they decided, like these people that we had in this video, or in this special element a minute ago, that they were going to stand up and do the right thing. And along the way, as they stand up and do the right thing, as they have courage under fire, God rewards them, God takes care of them. And we're going to look at another scripture today. It's not about Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 3, if you want to turn it over there. In Daniel chapter 3, what we find out is that it's the small group, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are the ones who uh, actually come to rescue in this one today. Here's what happens. King Nebi, the same guy, King, same crazy guy if you've been here, King Nebuchadnezzar is a real egomaniac, and he builds stuff that impresses other people, and he has built this 90-foot-tall statue, and we don't know what of, we don't know if it's of him or some god or whatever, 90-foot-tall gold statue. And he announced that, at the site of his new statue, whenever the music played, people were supposed to bow down and worship this statue. The herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. You know, my way or the highway, that was pretty much the way Nebuchadnezzar did things. And the people are afraid of the king. He's like an angry mountain lion. So they're going to do absolutely whatever he tells them to do. I mean, they're listening. You know, they're like, shh, shh, I think I hear music. I mean, the whole time. And as soon as the music plays, they drop. I mean, they kiss, they're kissing pavement. And then, then I'm imagining what they're doing is they're down there. And the music's going on. What would you do? You'd be like looking around, wouldn't you? You'd be like, I wonder if anybody didn't hear that. So, whoa! And they turned around, and all of a sudden, they see these three guys: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they have not bowed down. And they're like, Are they deaf? Are they suicidal? What in the world is going on? I mean, these guys aren't doing it. And Nebuchadnezzar hears about it, and he's mad, and he goes to them, and he says, Hey, what, why aren't you bowing down to my idol? And he gives them a second chance because he likes these guys. They're in training to be his advisors. And he says, Okay, here's the deal. I love this. When you hear the sound of the horn, or the flute, or the zither, I think that's a Dr. Seuss instrument, or the lyre, or the harp, or the pipe, or any kind of music. I mean, don't you do this with your kids sometimes? Look, I told you to do this. Let me be a little more specific, okay? Any instrument at all, if you hear any of those, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown into the blazing furnace. And then, here it is, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's a great question, isn't it? What God is that? Now, I need to help you understand. It's a rhetorical question, I believe. Don't you think? I mean, as a speaker, I ask rhetorical questions that I don't expect an answer to. You understand? I wasn't really asking that, you know. <laughs> it was rhetorical. Okay, it was just a, you know, parents, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? What's the most famous rhetorical question of all time? Do you want a spanking? Okay. <laughs> I've never known a kid who was like, well, yeah, I was going to play Wii, but sure, that sounds good. <laughs> it's rhetorical. You're not looking for an answer. It's like when your wife comes home from shopping and you say, did you buy anything? It's just a rhetorical question, okay? All right, that, that's all that it is. So Nebuchadnezzar is not looking for an answer. He's not looking for information. He's looking for obedience here. He's saying, listen, there's no other way out of this. You bow down or else. But much to his surprise, they did not treat it as a rhetorical question. When he said, what God will be able to rescue you from me? They said, 
Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Not what God, but the God. Not little g God, but big g God. What God can save us? Our God can save us. I, mean, I don't think it's possible for us to understand how many times in the Bible we can look at this and go, our God will save us and we can see what's going to happen. Last week we talked about Daniel, but there is a God in heaven can, who can do this. And we've seen how God has done this. And next week, Daniel's in the lion's den. And we we'll see that that's one of the best stories of all time. Be here next week for that. Somehow we've got to make ourselves look bigger because, you know, that 90-foot tall God looks pretty big. But when we put on the power of God, our God is real and he is much bigger than 90 feet, and he is able to help us. And the, 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 the deal here is you're going to have problems in your life. You're, you're going to have a seizure. You're going to have a medical issue. You're going to have a, a death. You're going to have a problem. You're going to get the disease. There's going to be a divorce. The S&P is going to downgrade your rating, okay? There are going to be problems in your life. And at some point, you've got to realize that you're going to need a, to make yourself look bigger. You're going to need a God that can actually save you. And the God that we serve, when we look in here, when we read his word, when we find out what's going on, the God in here, we know is able to save marriages. I've seen it happen. We know that he's able to heal from addictions. I've seen it happen over and over again. We know that he's able to forgive sins. I know that he's able to forgive mine all the time. I know that he's able to make a new creation. I know that he's able to, to help us in the middle of a bad economy. I know that he's able to inspire us. Our God is able. Say that with me. Our God is able. You've got to just hang on to that. But look at verse 18 because I mean, that's faith. This is extreme faith, verse 18. But, they said, we know what, we believe our God is able, but even if he does not save us from the furnace, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. But even if he does not, don't be deceived, king. We, we believe we serve the same God that drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, the same God that knocked down Jericho's walls with his breath, the same God, the same God that, that has knocked down Goliath with a stone, the same God, the same God, the same God. We believe in that. But you know what? We've already decided that even if he does not, our God is able. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't look for situations to put myself in that are going to force me into that kind of a deal. Do you? I mean, I don't go looking for the furnace. I don't go looking for the fire. I try to stay out of the fire. I heard about this little small town down in a valley that had a fire raging out of control one day, and so they called all the neighboring towns to try to help them with their fire departments. The whole town was engulfed, but it was down in the little valley, and it was hard to get to, and everybody was kind of on the outside of this town trying to, you know, trying to you know, spray water at it, but nobody could get to it. And it, just when they thought everything was lost, this dilapidated old fire truck from like the 1950s shows up, and it comes over the hill, and there's all these good old boy farmers, and it says volunteer fire truck on the side of it from a neighboring town, and it gets to the top of the hill, and it doesn't even stop. It just goes plowing right down into the middle of town, and these good old boys get out, and they start fighting the fire like their life is dependent on it, and pretty soon they start getting in control of the fire, and, and pretty soon everybody else comes in and starts to join them, and the whole town is saved, and everybody cheers 
years and it's unbelievable. And a couple of weeks later, after they got everything kind of put back together, they had a big banquet in honor of this volunteer fire department. And the mayor of the town said, hey, we're so thankful to you guys for what you've done. And everybody's cheering. Here's a $20,000 check from our town to your volunteer fire department. We just want to thank you. And he said, what do you think you want to do with it? And the old fire chief said, well, first thing we're going to do is fix the brakes on that truck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not, I, I'm not going to choose to go in there. I don't want to go in the fire. I, I mean, I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't want to go in the fire. But what they said was, look, if we have to go in, even if he does not save us from that, we have already made a decision. Like Job who said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Like Esther who said, even if I perish, I perish. I've already made up my mind ahead of time how I'm going to handle this. Well, this didn't make Nebuchadnezzar real happy. So Nebuchadnezzar was mad with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude towards him changed. No longer did he like them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I mean, if it's hot enough to burn you up already, I don't even know what the point of this is. But it was so hot, he threw them into the blazing furnace. And these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the furnace. And at the king's command, the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there. That's how hot it was. Now, let me say something right here, because, I mean, I think this is really important that we talk about this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace is uh, a lesson in, in community to me. It's a lesson in the fact that they were together. They had a small group. I mean, I, I want to push this for just a second. You've got a card in front of you. It says, weird when normal isn't working. We're looking for hosts today. We're not looking for you to sign up for small group. We're looking for hosts for our small groups because we're going to do this series right after 9-11. We're going to have a special 9-11 uh, tribute service and do some cool stuff. And then we're going to start this series, weird when normal isn't working. We've already shot the DVDs for it. All you need to do is fill this out. If you think you might be a host. You can open up your home to other Parkview people or you can just host your own friends. It doesn't matter. If you have a DVD player and you can make legal brownies for your friends, that's all you need to be able to do. Okay? It's really not, it's really not hard. Just, just pop it in and you do it. If you fill out this card, when you leave, they're going to give you a packet with a DVD in it and a bunch of information. And uh, you're, you, I mean, if you don't feel like that's what God's calling you to do, that's okay. You can change your mind later. But, that, but we really want to encourage you to do that. I'll talk more about the small group. Here's why I think this is important. I mean, I mean, when you face an angry mountain lion by yourself, it's one thing. But when you've got friends around you, it's something else, isn't it? I mean, if you've got to go into the blazing furnace all by yourself... It's difficult. Daniel had these three friends around him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had community. They were able to work together, and I can't tell you how important that is in my life. Actually, I will as this goes on. But, but I wanted to pause right here because you heard some of our stories earlier, some people that, that stood up for what they believed in. There's a, a really unbelievable story from a person who actually works in our tech booth on a regular basis. Uh, she's one of the leaders in the pro-life movement at this point because of a stand that she has taken uh, that she took back in the late 90s. Her name is Jill Stan. Would you just welcome her out with me right now? We have chairs. <laughs> Jill has uh, been around as long as I have, a little bit longer than I have in this church. We've been together for a long time. She's one of the few people that I didn't actually choose to be in this church. I just 
inherited her. And if I had it to do over again, I probably <laughs> wouldn't vote for you, knowing what I know now about you. Um, tell us uh, how you became, I mean, Jill, along the way, as I've known her, we've been friends for 21 years, uh, decided God was calling her to be a nurse. And so she got her nursing degree right. and got a job at the most logical place she could think of, Christ Hospital. And then she became aware that Christ Hospital was doing uh, some abortions, some hideous abortions. Tell us about the story. Right. I went to work at Christ Hospital after I graduated from nursing school. I picked it because it was a respected hospital. And I thought I would be safe from such moral and ethical dilemmas like abortion because who would think that a hospital named Christ could possibly be involved in such a thing? But I came to work one night in my capacity as a labor and delivery nurse, and I received two terrible blows. The first was finding out that the hospital was involved in late-term abortions. I heard in report that we were aborting a second-trimester baby that night with Down syndrome. And the second was finding out that the method of abortion that the hospital used, called induced labor abortion, sometimes resulted in babies being aborted alive. And if they were aborted alive, they were allowed to die without any medical intervention whatsoever. Uh, my, by my observation, about 25% of these babies survived their abortions, and they lived anywhere from a few minutes to one lived almost as long as an eight-hour shift. Unbelievable. And to a person who believes that every life is sacred, this practice was abominable, but it was magnified in my world because the very place that these particular abortions were taking place was at a hospital named after my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm. One night, a nursing co-worker was taking a little baby who'd survived his abortion to the soiled utility room to die, because that's where they went then, because his parents didn't want to hold him, and she didn't have time to hold him that night. And when she told me what she was doing, I couldn't bear the thought of this suffering child dying alone, and so I cradled and rocked him for the 45 minutes that he lived. He was between 21 and 22 weeks old. He'd been aborted because he had Down syndrome. So he was about the size of my hand, and he didn't move very much because he was using all of his energy attempting to breathe. And I remember I couldn't tell if he had passed away or not unless I held him up against the light to see if I could see his heart beating through his chest wall because our skin is so thin at that age. And after he was pronounced dead, I folded his little hands across his chest. I tied them together with a little string. I wrapped him in a shroud, and I took him to the morgue where we took all of our other dead patients. After I held that little guy, the weight of everything that I knew became too much for me to bear. I had two obvious choices. One was to leave the hospital, and one was to stay and fight. And while I was seeking counsel and praying, I read a scripture passage that I thought spoke directly to me, and it's Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, and it says, Rescue those who have unjustly been sentenced to death. Don't stand back and let them die. Don't try to disclaim responsibility by saying that you didn't know about it. For the Lord who knows all hearts knows you knew, and he will reward everyone according to his deeds. And so I thought those were my marching orders. Mm. I was called to stay and fight. All right. So what did you do going forward? Well, I came to you for advice. Never a good idea. Well, it, it, was, it was good advice that time, one time. 
And uh, you, we decided to handle this as Jesus had commanded in Matthew 18. When you see someone involved in sin, first you go to them privately and appeal to them to stop. If that doesn't work, then you take back a witness or two again privately. And then if that doesn't work, you take the matter before the church or you go public. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a letter, a private letter, to the religious leaders of the hospital because I couldn't believe that they knew what was going on in the labor and delivery department, just a couple of floors over their heads. But they knew, and as a result of my letter, I was calling for a meeting with my department superiors who told me I might be better suited at another hospital that was more in line with my pro-life convictions that they weren't going to stop. So next, Tim and I alerted a couple of influential people and organizations and asked them to privately appeal to the hospital. We didn't want this to go public if we could help it. But the Cardinal helped? uh, Cardinal Francis George wrote a letter to the hospital. C. Everett Coop. Dr. C. Everett Coop. We had some pretty heavy hitters in on this. Yeah, he's a former, in case you didn't know, the former Surgeon General of the United States under Reagan, and he was pro-life. But appeals like this had no impact Mm -hmm. on the hospital. They said they weren't going to stop. So... As Tim told them he was going to do if they didn't stop, in July of 99, he wrote a letter to 70 churches and pro-life organizations in the Chicago area and around the country letting them know what Christ Hospital was up to. And that just triggered a firestorm of publicity because, first of all, nobody knew about this abortion procedure. And then to find out it was being committed at a hospital named Christ was really inflammatory. Mm. So before I knew it, the story was in Newsweek and the U.S. News and World Report, and I was being interviewed on the O'Reilly Factor, and I didn't even know who Bill O'Reilly was. I was like, oh, whatever, God, okay. And now I know who he is, and I'm so glad I didn't know who he was (laughs) (laughs) Um, So then uh, you ended up in Congress. I mean, telling the rest of the story is pretty cool. Well, in April 2000, according to God's perfect timing of events, a bill that had been in the works in the federal level for over a decade called the Born Alive Infants Protection Act was finally getting a hearing. Uh, What was going on was the the background of this was that very few people in the public knew that this procedure was going on, but the truth was it was going on all over the country. country. Right. So So this law was designed to stop infanticide, which is a logical progression of abortion. Mm -hmm. And it said... Any baby born alive, no matter what gestational age, no matter what reason for being born, wanted or not, was a constitutionally protected person. And so they called me to testify about what I I saw at Christ Hospital. And um, I testified in Washington twice. And then I testified, went on to testify seven times before various state legislative committees that were um, considering born alive legislation on the state level. Meantime... Um, you know, with all the mounting publicity that was going on and, and, and pickets at the hospital and prayer vigils. Our, our church was very mm-hmm. involved in prayer vigils there, uh, all the publicity. I continued to work there for another two years after I went public. I didn't like staying there, but every time I thought about leaving, Isaiah 8:18 kept coming back to me, and it says, I will wait with hope for the Lord. I am here with the children that the Lord has given me. Mm-hmm. But I, I do have to admit that life and work became more and more difficult as time went on. As you might imagine, you know, I began to feel like I was leading the life of a double agent, uh, flying off to Washington, D.C. one minute to testify, and the next minute being so close to abortion that I almost couldn't stand it. And that final night, as I walked through the main doors of the hospital to work, and underneath the mission statement that said, in part, all human beings are created in the image of God, So they knew exactly who they were aborting. They had no excuses. I became sick to my stomach, and I said, Oh, God, Mm. 
How long are you going to make me do this? And it turned out that God's answer was, not that much longer, Jill. (laughs) This was August 31st, 2001, and I went in to punch in at the time clock, and there was my boss waiting for me, which is an ominous sign when your boss is waiting for you at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. Yeah, not a good deal. And sure enough, I was terminated, and I was escorted out of the hospital with security guards. It was all very exciting, and... My termination even made the New York Times on page two. Yeah. Just what I want to be famous for, getting fired. <laughs> but what Christ Hospital did was blindside me that it was involved in the most despicable moral issue of our time. And then the hospital wanted me to walk away from it? Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't because I answered to a bigger boss. Mm. People come... People will come up to me and they'll say to me, Jill, I don't think that I could do what you did. And that makes me sad. It makes me sad that I even stand out at all. Because I think, do you not worship the same God that I do? As you mentioned earlier in your sermon, the God who parted the Red Sea and then buried Pharaoh's army in it. Do you not believe the promises that the Bible makes? If we're faithful to him, he'll be faithful to us. One of those promises is, no one who waits for me will ever be put to shame, Psalm 25.3. And in my case, God vindicated me pretty quick, August 5, 2002. A couple days before that, I got a call from the White House. And it actually shows up on your caller ID, White House. <laughs> Just in case you ever know, you know, it ever happens to you. And they said President George Bush was signing the Born Alive Infants Protection Act into law and would I like to be president at the signing ceremony? And I said, well, of course. And I was honored to attend and honored for my family to well, attend and, too. And, and grab a hold of this. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, how, that's so cool. From, from standing up in, in one little hospital to being a part of an actual legislation that has protect protected uh, children since that point. Right. So uh, then didn't end there. So where does it go from there and where are no. you at now? Uh, by the time I got fired, I was being asked to speak around the country on the pro-life issue of my experience. And so after I left Christ Hospital, my life totally segued into full-time pro-life speaking. And I launched a pro-life blog. And remember when I mentioned that I testified before some state legislative committees Well, that came into play in the 2008 presidential election because Barack Obama was an Illinois state senator, and I testified before committees, three committees that he was on. And he and I tangled in committee over Born Alive because he opposed it, and he went on to vote against it four times before he left and went on to to be a U.S. senator. So that became a huge media issue during the campaign. Mm -hmm. Publicity that you weren't sure it was going to happen either. No, and it doesn't stop. And, it, and then it just kept going. Right. Um, my blog, I mentioned I have a blog. My blog can get me into trouble with liberals. Don't Google my name. <laughs> so um, Keith Olbermann, who is former MSNBC commentator, uh, he had, before he, he was fired, he had a segment called Worst Person of the night, worst person of the day um, on his show. And so in June of ni- in 2009, he made, named me the worst person in the world Woo! one night for what worst I blogged. Worst person right here, ladies and gentlemen. Because of her stand for the unborn. 
And then, you know, because of that, then I started getting death threats from this guy, and then this guy outed him as my pastor online. And so for a little while there, the FBI was having to keep an eye on both of us. Yeah. And then we hired him to be our executive pastor, and everything turned out fine. So <laughs> um, it's all good. It's an amazing story of somebody who decided, who felt called to stand up and do what she felt like she needed to do. And I'll tell you the end of the story later, but let's just thank her for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. All right, I'll tell you the rest of the story. I mean, she's not in nursing anymore. She's a, a person that's uh, one of the most influential pro-lifers in, in the country because God did that with her. What happens to our men in the furnace? They're so firmly bound in the furnace that they can't possibly get out. They're, they're in there, and all of a sudden they realize that they're not dead, okay? I, don't imagine what, I can't imagine what was going through their head, but at some point they turned around and they realized that the guys that threw them in are dead, but they're not dead. And they started looking at each other and talking to each other, and this is the part where it turns from a mirror into a divine encounter in verse 24 then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors hang on weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire and they said yes O king and he said look I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth one looks like the son of God's <laughs> is that not the coolest thing ever? Who was this fourth guy? We don't know. Was it Michael? Was it Gabriel? I mean, most commentators would say, it's Jesus. I mean, why wouldn't it be Jesus? This is the kind of thing that God would send Jesus to do. Hey, my boys are in the fire. Go hang out. Jesus was a furnace kind of person. And what did Jesus or the angel say to them? He, he, he said, hey, I'm proud of you. God's proud of you. Way to go. You're going to be okay. As a matter of fact, from now on, people will remember your names throughout history and thousands and thousands of years later, Pastor Tim Harlow will be preaching a sermon about you. I'm sure Jesus said that. I wonder what they said to the fourth guy. I mean, come on. Here's the point of the story, though. I want you to get this. Sometimes God delivers us from the furnace, but sometimes God delivers us in the furnace. The place that they did not want to be, the place that they thought was going to be dangerous and painful, turned out to be the place of supernatural adventure. It's unbelievable. And then Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. And so they came out of the fire, and they, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, and their robes were not scorched, and there was not even a smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, New God! <laughs> Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego! who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. They defied me and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, new God, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. 
You know, he just, he just hadn't heard of the Bill of Rights. I mean, there just wasn't there, okay? He, he, he said, you know, I'm going to cut you and burn down your house, okay? Because we have a new God. Why? Listen to this again. For no other God can save this way. Can I get a boogity, boogity, boogity amen? <laughs> huh? I mean, is that not the coolest the rest of the story, verse 30, the king pronounced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He promoted them. They got promoted. Jill got promoted to being a person who was going to go out into the world and help with the cause of the unborn. And she's not a nurse anymore, but God promoted her. You know what happened at Christ Hospital? 2005, right after service, uh, I'm you know, doing a meet and greet. This big guy comes up to me and goes, hey, my name's... Ken Lucard, I am the new president of Christ Hospital. <laughs> really? <laughs> I said, that's awesome. He told me a little bit about himself, and it's obvious he's a Christian. He just, they'd just taken the job. they just moved up from St. Louis, and uh, they were looking for a church, and they were here, and they were worshiping with us. I said, well, you know what? We ought to talk. And, uh, and so we went golfing because, you know, I mean, I figured I was going to need like four hours with this guy by the time we got around to it. So, so about the third hole, I'm not, I'm not making this up, ask him if you work at Christ. About the third or fourth hole, I, I said, so do you know the history of Parkview and Christ Hospital? And he said, no, I have no idea. <laughs> he had no clue. I've never seen a guy's golf game dive into the toilet any faster. I mean, forget about Tiger Woods. This was unbelievable. He was, was like all over the... He couldn't do... He had no idea. Here's what's really ironic about it. He remembered, that, he remembered the story... He didn't. He remembered the story about Jill and the late-term abortions and, and the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. He had never put it together with the hospital he had just been called to serve. He also remembered, as he went back and talked to his wife about it, who is a member of Concerned Women for America and a you know, very, very strong pro-life person, he remembered that Carla had, at that point, back in 2001 or 2000, when she heard the story, had prayed... Dear God, please send administrators to Christ Hospital to fix this problem. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times you pray a prayer for God to fix something and he goes, yeah, okay, how about you do it? But they hadn't put the whole thing together. Well, the rest of the story is Ken's been at Christ Hospital since 2005. They've completely changed their policies. They are uh, biblical values all over again. That gold cross that stands up on top of Christ Hospital, I'm very proud of. If I had to go to any hospital, it'd be Christ Hospital because if you know the president, you get extra ice chips. So... Um, and, and, and really, I mean, the rest of that story, if you, if you, if you know it, I mean, some of you know that, um, you know, for example, maybe you too, but for example, Brian and Sheree Hunt, Brian is our campus pastor over at Lockport, they had a very preemie baby born that had a lot of head, medical problems, it was at Christ Hospital, the baby's life was saved at Christ Hospital, I mean, that's the way God works the rest of the story all around, that's how it works, sometimes, it, it, you know, you ask God to fix something and he's going to send you, Jill didn't get promoted in Christ Hospital and nursing, but she got promoted to the other place. Ken got promoted to a place where he could come in, and, and the people at Advocate love him. They say he's an answer to prayer, and he's doing a great job leading that hospital. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, hey, even if he does not save us, we're going to stand up. And what does God do? God, uh, God promotes them. 
He promotes them. That's what he does. And that experience that they thought was going to be horrible turned out to be supernatural. And I think that it marked them for the rest of their lives. I think they kept those robes and got them out on the anniversary of the date every year and got together and said, hey, man, is, you remember when we did this? Remember when we were young and, and we were courageous and, and we said, even if he does not? Because I'll tell you something. When you meet God in the furnace, it marks you, doesn't it? It marks you. You know what I'm talking about. And ironically, the place that looked like the worst place they could be turned out to be the best place they could be. Because where God is, a spider's web is as a stone wall. And sometimes God delivers people from the furnace, and sometimes God delivers them in the furnace. And what I want to say to you is I want you to be careful that you don't spend your whole Christian life doing furnace avoidance. You know? Because sometimes God's going to call you to take a stand. Sometimes God's going to call you to be the person that he wants you to be. Ortberg writes about it really well. He says, I have this picture of God in my mind, and he has a calendar, which he, you know, I know he doesn't have, but I have this picture of, of God having this calendar, and he has an appointment, and on this appointment, 10 o'clock, whatever that day was, it says, meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. And I thought, I wonder what would have happened if they would have not shown up. What if they would have said, you know what, we're going to do furnace avoidance? What if they would have pretended they were tying their shoe when the king asked them to bow down and just kind of, you know, kind of half went along with it? What if, I'll tell you what if, they would have missed the supernatural? Now, I've got to be honest with you. I had, a, I had a bad week with my faith. And it had to do with this economy and the S&P and all the goofy stuff going on, not because I have any money in the stock market, but because when this bad economic news came back out again today, we're just on the cusp of getting ready to do some new initiatives. We're, you know what? I don't know if you look around. We had 30 people in the underground at the 11 o'clock service last week. In August, look around. There's no place to sit in August. We need more room for people. And can I just say, get out of here. Get out of the 11 o'clock service for crying out loud. We need more room in here because this is where everybody comes through. But, but it's frustrating. We had eight live Easter services. We started on Thursday. That doesn't make any sense. We need more room. And we've been putting off trying to raise funds for more room because of the economy. And then we put it off because of the economy. And we put it off of the economy. And we want to build a safe house to rescue girls from the sex trade. And we have poor people to feed. And we have things that we want to do. And this economy just keeps holding us up. And it's Wednesday, you know, one of the days when the stock market went way down. And I'm just having a really, really bad day. And, and I happened to have my, one of my men's small groups that night that I led. And I went to the group. We were talking about things, and I was kind of, you know, like, man, I can't believe this. This is so discouraging. I don't, I don't know how we're going to be able to add on or add campuses or do anything with the economy being what it is. And they just kind of looked back at me, and they, they said, I remember hearing a sermon recently about how you should take a vacation from your worries. I said, shut up. This is why you need a small group, people. This is why you need, you need to have people around you and you need to have people in your life because there's going to be times when you don't want to go face the furnace. I didn't want to face the furnace. I don't want to face the furnace. I don't want to fix the, I want to fix the brakes on the truck. I don't want to go, I don't want to do this. But one of them said something really, really profound back to me in my face. He said, you know what? Maybe God needs the economy to be the way it is because more people find him when they're down and out than when they're doing well. And it was really ironic because one of the guys in our group had just been to Abu Dhabi on work. 
over in the Middle East where everybody's a millionaire because they have so much oil. They're like, everybody's a millionaire. And, and he'd gone over there for work, and we were just kind of talking about how crazy it was over there. And I was like, yeah, you know, we ought to go have a Parkview campus over there. That'd be awesome, you know? And, and, and the irony of it was we all sat around and talked about it, and we said, you know what? That's probably going to be pretty difficult work because people that have everything that they need don't need God. Right? Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. How easy it is when you're in the furnace. How easy it is when things are hard, when things are tough to find God. And so that's where we are again. And maybe this economy is something that God is going to use to bring more and more people to Him. And and we'll figure out where to put them and we'll move them around and we'll do whatever we have to do. But maybe the bad news of the economy is actually another furnace experience that we're supposed to turn to and trust God with our resources and trust that He's going to work everything out. Maybe the breaks need to fail in the truck so that we can go into the fire and find the fourth guy okay maybe after the sermon where i told you to take a vacation from your worries i ought to practice what i preach i'll just be honest because where did god ever say to his followers hey you guys follow me if you follow me your marriage will be perfect and you'll have two wonderful cars and 2.5 kids and everything's going to work out. Where did, do you ever see that in the Bible? Because all I ever see Jesus saying is, hey, follow me and you will have outrageous joy and you'll serve a great big God and you'll be in trouble all the time. <clears throat> and you're probably going to die. Right? That's Christianity. And it started with 12 and it went to 120 and it went to 500, 3,000 to 2 billion people today who are following him in servanthood and generosity and suffering and persecution and all around the globe following him into the furnace and dying and, and, and saying, even if he does not, I'm going to serve him. This is uh, the last sermon my youngest, <laughs> I thought I could do it. This is the last sermon my youngest daughter is going to hear as a Parkview member, active Parkview member. She is going off to college on Wednesday. She's been here all of her life. She's heard every sermon that I've ever preached when she wasn't asleep. Um, <laughs> she'll listen online. She'll, she'll be back for Christmas. She'll be back for summer. But my children don't have a a real good track record of coming back after college, so I don't know what's going to end up with Becca. And as that thought hit me, and as I was watching her worship just a minute ago, it was really starting to get to me that this is probably, you know, a a, a pivotal moment in our family's life, our last worship service with her as a part of our family before she goes off and the nest is empty. And 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 I thought as I was thinking about this this week, is this the last sermon I would want her to hear? And I realize the answer is yes. I'd, I'd, I'd love to say, hey, Becca, when you go off to college in freaking Los Angeles, <laughs> everything's going to be great and you're going to learn to surf. And, you know, I mean, God's going God's to help you with the ministry that you're being trained for and, and your life's going to turn out. And you're going to have a wonderful marriage and you're going to have wonderful kids and I'm going to have wonderful grandkids and everything's going to work out. But the truth of the matter is, I, I keep thinking of that guy that did the, you know, one last lecture thing before he was dying. If I have one last sermon, this is probably it. Our God is able. But even if he does not, I will serve him.
Rich Mullins sang a song several years ago. Rich Mullins, who was killed in a car accident and did not last, uh, didn't get to be with us as long as we wish he would, went on to heaven in a car accident, had a song that said, You will meet the Lord in the furnace a long time before you meet him in the sky. And that is the truth. I don't know what furnace you're facing, my friends. I don't know what this means for you. I just know that he will meet you there. And I know what he says in Isaiah 42. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, not, and not when I'm going to keep you out of the waters, I'm going to keep you out of the rivers, but when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Check this. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Our God is able. He will meet you in the furnace. Now we're going to close up with a communion and um, it's an opportunity for us to just spend a minute with Jesus. If you're in a furnace now, then this is your fourth man opportunity. If you're not in a furnace right now, this is your opportunity to be bolstered up because something is probably going to happen at some point in your life where you're going to need to remember this and this is your fourth man experience. Here's why I'm going to go back to that passage. Here's why I believe it was Jesus that was in the furnace. Because when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, our God is able to save us, but even if he does not, we will serve him, it sounded a lot the same as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, take this cup from me, but even if you do not, your will be done. And of course we know the story. Jesus had to go ahead and go through the furnace. Jesus had to go to the cross so that he could die for you and me. And we celebrate the faith and the strength and the courage and the greatness of Jesus Christ right now who died so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we can also celebrate the faith of three guys, three young Israelite boys who said our God can save us let's pray Lord I pray for us I know I touched on a nerve because other people are sending their kids off it's a tricky time for us to think about letting our kids go off into the world into the real world uh, out of our care um, out to where life happens and uh, we pray for them pray for everybody who's in that situation. I pray for the woman who was taken to the hospital from our service last hour and for the uh, guy who works here whose wife is in the hospital and he was just called in because she's not doing well and, and just so many situations. And even as I look around, people that I know are hurting and in furnace situations and I pray that we will be strong and that we will say back to the Nebuchadnezzar, back to the evil one, hey, our God is able, but if he doesn't do it the way that I think he's going to do it, it's okay because I'm still going to follow him. I've already made up my mind who I'm going to serve. Jesus, that's what you did, and you went to the cross for us so that we could be free, and we just ask that you would be with us now as we spend some time commemorating your death, as we spend some time with you thinking about the fact that our God is able to save us. Be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name.